0: There was a seamlessness with which I assumed Christianity was working for me and that if I learned to pray in a certain way, wouldn't I be good? And then it, I think it, it became a certain kind of sense of entitlement that maybe I was the right kind of person and, and I never would have said it because it's <laughs> too Canadian and too Mennonite to be openly proud, but that I deserved my life. And so, right. by the time I got sick, I had—I was quite certain that my life is something I deserved, and I was truly horrified to find out otherwise.
1: Hey, welcome along to Reenchanting. It's Justin and Bell here. Just before we introduce today's guest, Kate Bowler, uh, we just wanted to let you know that you've got an opportunity to support. The future work of the reenchanting podcast. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to season one and season two, would you consider supporting this ministry, this way of bringing these conversations to people with and without faith? Um, your giving means that more people can experience the podcast. Uh, so if you'd like to join our community of supporters, you can visit seenandunseen.com slash give. Um, and it's a good time of the year to think about doing that, I suppose, isn't it, Bell?
2: It's a great time of the year, and I don't know, you don't tend to know how podcasts land land on your phone, but just to say that this one is completely made possible by the generosity, the encouragement, and the support of listeners, of people like you who want the world to be re-enchanted, who want their friends and their family to be re-enchanted, who want to have these conversations and to keep listening to them.
1: Yeah, so uh, we'd be really grateful if you'd consider making a gift to re-enchanting to seen an unseen part of yes. your your giving as we approach christmas this year um again the link is with the show notes of today's program seenandunseen.com give for now enjoy today's program
2: So welcome to yet another episode of Reenchanting, the podcast brought to you by Seen and Unseen. I am Belle Tindall. And I'm Justin Briley. And we, along with our very wonderful guests, we ponder whether this post-Christian, postmodern world can be reenchanted with the wonder and the mystery of the Christian faith once more. And you know the drill by now, if you could rate and review our for podcasts, if you could subscribe and like our videos by doing so, you are helping reenchanting go far and wide.
1: That's right, it would be really helpful if you could do that, uh, especially because we really want people to know about today's guest. Kate Bowler is an mm. author, podcast host, and associate professor of American religious history at Duke University in North Carolina. Now, after being unexpectedly diagnosed with stage four cancer at the age of 35, Kate penned the New York Times bestselling memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, as well as No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. Kate hosts the Everything Happens podcast, which she's got wonderfully resplendent behind her on her camera today. (laughs) And uh, she often talks on that podcast with guests about what they've learned in difficult times.
2: Yeah, so we'll be asking Kate about her journey with cancer and some of the theology often associated with health, wealth and prosperity. And in a social media saturated culture where people often curate a picture perfect version of their lives, how can we re-enchant the reality of being imperfect, broken humans in a messy world?
1: So, Kate Bowler, welcome along. I'm really looking forward to this conversation as we talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, and it's a a kind of a on the nose title for today's discussion, but re-enchanting cancer, because that's obviously at the centre of your story. But before we get to your, your story, normally, and I'm afraid we haven't got you in person today, but normally we'd be doing this at the top of Lambeth Palace Library. Uh, which is obviously a, a treasure trove of ecclesiological <laughs> literature. So we always ask our guests, first question in, what are you currently reading?
0: Oh, and how dare you downgrade me from the fanciness I would like to grow. Mm-hmm. It's like what my dad would say to boyfriends. Are you tre- prepared to treat my daughter in the way she would like to become accustomed? <laughs> so,
2: and we haven't.
0: How dare you? Well, actually, I just finished a few moments ago this beautiful book. Um, it's an Irish book called Foster and it's this little novella about um about parents loving a child that isn't theirs and i was completely in love and very wow. weepy i've read uh, that how many? is it
2: good or to you oh, did you love it weepy is a oh. is a symptom <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: what i i always discover that Belle has read h- at least half the books all the guests have read uh, whereas i'm usually completely ignorant of them so i this is a, yet another <laughs> one that i need to add to my to my pile of mm. reading list yeah but um <laughs> It is, it's great. How, how often do you get to sort of read Kate? Is that something that's a big deal in your life?
0: Well, historians are just vast collectors of the boring. We see it out there lying dormant in the world and we gather it loosely and then tightly into our arms. And so, yeah, for the most part, I'm just reading reading and then I read a lot for the podcast but that's the first time I've ever read widely out of field for the most part I Mm, read incredibly mm. detailed histories of American religion
1: on on your web yeah that that is actually you're welcome
0: (laughs) you're welcome world I've done it so that others (laughs) might not I, I
1: I was fascinated when I went onto your website the other day to see that you you say that your motto is uh life is so beautiful life is so hard so if you've ever ruined some perfectly good small talk at a party with your honesty, we're already friends. <laughs> Are you kind of one of those just too too honest sometimes people?
0: Yeah, Kate? I guess well, I, um, I don't do as well in formal cultures <laughs> because I am more likely to tell you what's going on. Uh, yeah, which is surprising because I was born in London and yet somehow, somehow not fully prepared for... Um, you you but, didn't inherit
1: the British Reserve that, that often or, comes with it.
0: Yes, or what the French call la politesse. I've got, yeah. uh, I've got very little of it. Um, but I think maybe because I study the creation and sort of calcification of cultural scripts and cliches, I think that has made me even more likely to break them. Mm.
2: <laughs> I love it. Before this podcast, recording I've spent about eight minutes in your company when you popped into our <laughs> office in London and after those eight minutes I already knew you were one of my favorite people ever Aww, so I think <laughs> nice. it, it was like this like refreshing whirlwind into <laughs> oh our my office. gosh
0: hi how are you what's going yeah. on <laughs> do you know this so, person <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah so it totally works um and it I'm, it's going to make you a great podcast guest for us, so <laughs> not Thanks, mad Fred. about it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so can we start, talking about you, can we start from the very beginning in that what did childhood look like, growing up look like, and where and how did faith slot itself into an early Kate?
0: Yeah, well, both my parents uh, became Christians a bit later in life, which I am grateful for because they had a very... Mm. uh, I didn't get a lot of the Christian kitsch that comes to define much of North American religious childhoods. I did get one Christian uh, recording album about aunts who were very pleased about their faith and saying about patience a lot uh, that was that was one haunting moment but for the rest of them uh, it was just the sense that I lived in a very secular country Canada and that faith would have to be something you would choose for a very good reason otherwise um, what's the point point? and so my, my mom I think is the only person I've ever met who was spiritually converted by a tract. She was in a student center, and someone handed her like a three-fold piece of paper that was like, "Have you sinned and fallen short of the glory of God?" And she's like, "I suppose I have." (laughs) Wow, those people do exist. It works, (laughs) Karen. Karen Jensen. Yeah, that was uh, so. That was it for her, and um, and I think my dad read Augustine and thought, you know, I suppose this is a worldview, and. and the the combination of that was was a lovely bit of i i learned I, I think what I now understand to be the the beauty of pietism like the the knowledge mm. that your spiritual feelings can be reliable because God can be working through um you know as John Wesley would say right the strangely warmed heart and mm. yeah. And what I learned from my dad's very cerebral faith was that it was worth asking questions. And so uh, immediately I did. I always wanted to be a historian. I thought, what a wonderful way to be nosy with other people and <laughs> collect endless amounts of bits that could create what I hoped would be a better worldview. And that really fundamentally shaped what I thought of as like the Christian faith. Mm. Yeah,
1: interesting. I, I, it's so interesting to hear, in a way, the very. Different ways in which your parents came to faith, you know, one through a tract, one through reading Augustine. Um, <laughs> I uh, don't know and which I is don't...
2: like the more unusual, <laughs> yeah. there, the more <laughs> <laughs> unlikely. It's like but, but, one person you know. patting
0: a book has <laughs> closing 400 pages, the yeah. other just a well. single sheet of paper. <laughs> what, what
1: kind of sort of Uh, ideas though did you grow up with then uh, as you grew up in this christian household when it came to i suppose things like success suffering this this kind of mantra that everything happens for a reason i guess you picked up some stuff along the way that you had to then rethink later
0: i well because it's a strange thing i I mostly grew up among mennonites who are just you know the cheese eaters of the prairies they (laughs)
2: lovers
0: of flat pack furniture uh that they will build in front of you at a party when you've asked them not to. (laughs) They're just, uh, but they love suffering and they have an acute theology of suffering. And they are also very proud of unbelievably low low standards for life. It's it's that sort of theological pessimism that says, huddle up, stay together, um, because they have of course been a persecuted people. And so it, it was, I didn't realize though, that somewhere in me, and then I kind of began to think, well, maybe somewhere in all of us was a sort of dark thread though of entitlement that if I was good in some way that I was always trying to figure out that I would be building something, and so maybe I did it early on with even just my beliefs that i could have I could have the right beliefs, I could have mm-hmm. the right doctrine, I could have a sound and interesting foundation for my arguments. I felt very, um, there was a seamlessness with which I assumed Christianity was working for me. And that if I learned to pray in a certain way, wouldn't I be good? And then it, I think it, it became a certain kind of sense of entitlement that maybe I was the right kind of person. And, and I never would have said it because it's <laughs> too Canadian and too Mennonite to be openly proud, but that I deserved my life. And so right. by the time I got sick, I, had, I was quite certain that my life is something I deserved. And I was truly horrified to find out otherwise.
2: Mm. And you've mm. done a lot of work. Did that come, you've done a lot of research into prosperity gospel and prosperity theology. What came first for
0: you? Was it that research or was it more introspective? Well, oh, it was the research. I fell in love yeah. with studying the prosperity gospel the very first time I saw a Church that I thought was a factory pop up in Canada, spilling people out on Sunday morning, and I was like, because <laughs> I loudly told everyone, no, that is for Americans. Like we don't do this here. <laughs> we don't have massive churches. We don't have chur- you know, pastors with amazing hair. We don't have people who celebrate pastors appreciation day by giving their pastor a motorcycle. Like we don't do that. And then to find out that it was largely Mennonites that were attending. Canada's largest prosperity megachurch in my hometown of Winnipeg that first my historical side of my brain exploded and then the other side was like, yeah. well, then I have to figure this out. Like, how is it that people theologically accustomed and to suffering would choose a theology of victory? So I tried to solve the riddle of the, you know, Mennonite prosperity megachurch for most of my twenties. I traveled around interviewing televangelists. Um, I'm trying to make that sound normal to you, but I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna let the sentence be what it is
1: what what was some of the standout sort of memories you have of that very interesting period of, yes. of interviewing I guess quite unusual people
0: yeah. well I mean because there's there's all the caricatures and you know that they are the private jets and the his and her mercedes and 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 they are for the most part true. I mean, I have stood next to an entire in a mega church with a first lady next to it just a wall, mega church wall of an aquarium. Um next to a big sign that said, like, behold, I will make you fishers of men. Then I realized that they had released just one shark like (laughs) into the water, which I thought was sort of spiritually apropos. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I've seen like um, eagles released into the uh, mega church. I've seen, you know, Benny Hinn under a giant blue nesty umbrella. Having people having paid to have him personally baptize them and he would just only lightly he would lean down wow. off of his enormous chair. He was being fanned by his <laughs> security team. I spent so long <laughs> with his security team. Anyway, just wild behavior. Um Wow. And th- he he also dropped all of us off at a diamond refinery because he would get a cut of the and there was like th- every other stop there was like some kind of attempt at a spiritual analogy, but this was like, hey, it's a diamond refinery. So <laughs> we were all yeah. working really hard on that one. Um, wow! But it was, but for the most part, what I loved about it was that apart from the bigger and better and show and tellness of the pastors, where the the people in the pews were so lovely, and their mm-hmm. hopes were so ordinary. God, make my family be together. God, mm-hmm. heal this one stupid, unfixable problem. God, I don't have health insurance. How am I supposed to solve this? And so listening to their desire to see god in their everyday life i i never stopped finding really inspirational so most of the history that i wrote was an account of everyday faith and and their attempt to see health wealth and victory play out Mm. yeah because
2: even when you've said prosperity gospel and whenever I hear it or, you know, whenever a documentary is made about it, whenever a dramatization film is made about it, it's always about the leaders at the top, the ones yeah. who. And by the way, is that motorbike thing real? Did that really happen? It really did. Leon <laughs> Fontaine. Yes. There you go. So it's all about those instances, <laughs> but I've never thought, I've never thought about the people who are in the seats, the people that are gathered and, and, and those people and those hopes and what is driving them into those buildings uh what is driving them to be paid to be baptized by a certain person? no one no one's really paying attention Mm -hmm. to those Mm -hmm. people and Mm -hmm. those motivations and those stories
0: yeah Uh, because i think what that taught me was that uh theologically wherever you kind of drop the anchor there's there's really something to be learned and so for prosperity gospel who does expect that being a Christian ought to bring you health, wealth, and happiness. The bit that they really get right is they drop the anchor on God's great goodness and a very high account of creation, which is when we look at each other, shouldn't we, you know, what father would, when asked for bread, would give Mm. you a stone? That kind of feeling, like, doesn't God love me? Isn't God's goodness? Shouldn't I be able to see it and feel it? And, Mm. you know, of course there's their account of what, I mean, where it breaks down is: Are we to blame for the difficult things that happen to us? You mm-hmm. know, and the the answer is, of course, no. But the desire, the, the the belief that God's desires for us are good, is is a really powerful one, and it's also one where um, I I belong to a, a you know I, I teach in a seminary and I, I teach a lot of would-be pastors that are nervous about being too hopeful too optimistic praying too big and it's sort of refreshing to be around people who hope mm. hope that god might touch everything and that everything might be changed mm. Mm.
1: i i watched the uh the 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 film um about tammy faye Baker and uh, Jimmy Baker you may have seen it yourself Kate Um, Jessica Chastain I think and Andrew Garfield playing the lead roles and it was I mean at at one level it it was kind of kind of scary (laughs) because this was kind of being played out in front of you was one of the fathers of the modern televangelist movement and all the sadness and brokenness and toxicity that that was involved in it uh, sadly but also it also painted a very human picture especially obviously of Tammy Faye Um, and you kind of have to remember these are humans. It's <laughs> a kind of manifestations yeah. of the brokenness of human is often manifested in very broken versions of Christian faith, but which sometimes even in their brokenness can still have a kernel of something as you saw in the, the yeah. lives of the people attending these churches. Yeah. Um, um what, what what about then your own journey? Because obviously you'd you'd kind of looked at that you know as a researcher um that whole thing then of course came your cancer diagnosis tell Mm -hmm. us tell us what happened and obviously we'll talk about how you then started to to understand and and reevaluate your own theology in light of that
0: Mm. well i'd i'd had um i'd had about a a few years where nothing was quite going right like i had a, a a difficult joint disorder that led to Arm paralysis for almost two years, so I was voice dictating my dissertation in my parents' basement between crying and a lot of like, no, I said anthropology, anthropology, a n, you know, and, you know when I if I'm tired, I would still be like, hey Justin, comma, because I'm, you know, letting myself learn to think. But it was I really had a rough go for a bit, uh, but then I hit one of those amazing little seasons you get sometimes where everything just comes together. And I finally got pregnant after years of infertility and I had this smushy little froggy eyed baby Zach and um, my health was on the way up and I landed my dream job at, to be honest, like just the coolest place to do theological education. (laughs) So many gargoyles, so much quarried stone. guys. Um, (laughs) It was just, it was a dream. And I was finally getting somewhere. And then I just started having stomach pain. Uh, So I I started going to every single doctor. I think I chewed through about 50 different people and appointments. I was sent home from the ER with Pepto-Bismol. I just was genuinely not believed. And then at one point, I just refused to leave a doctor's office. Um, And uh, but I was just uh, demanded to get a different scan, because we just assumed it was like maybe a weird gallbladder or something small going on. And then I got the scan and went to my office and was doing my work. And the next day I got a call from the physician's assistant that said that I had stage four cancer and that I would have to come to the hospital right away. And that everything about my I knew about my life was was over so suddenly because it it was one of those surreal things. Because my university where I work is also attached to the hospital. That in one moment I'm wearing like my fancy blazer and I'm around the artifacts of this life that I've built, and then you walk, you know, two hundred steps, and then you're in rough cotton and people are saying things like, you know, they're measuring your masses in your body, then you don't know where they are. And it turns out I was just swimming in cancer. And there had been no cancer in my family. So it wasn't even like it was like a glimmer of a thought. And then uh, and it was just like it was like a landslide and everything Mm. was gone. And in that moment, I was so uh, there was like two feelings. One was just just pure horror, because I think the first thing I said was, um, but I have a son. Like, you're just like, you find yourself arguing with your Mm. life, Mm. um, for your life, just for your own, for any reason why it shouldn't be you. And then it was me. And trying to get my, wrap my brain around it, I think I was so, um, I felt so small because i had spent so long begging for my own pain that by the time that they said it was too late it was it was it was hard to like see my own value honestly at that point it really Mm -hmm. felt like it uh like i wasn't worth much at all so that was yeah that would be like a good moment um like feel the goodness of god right is to feel like yours your stupid life matters your dumb pain your ridiculous plans your hubris (laughs) you know you're like 12-part theory about why your life was going somewhere and that leveling was like a kind of reckoning i had not ever dealt with before Mm. and you said you felt really
2: small and 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 small in the system and did was there a sense that you felt god's closeness or goodness in there or was that absent did it feel absent in that moment and and was that you know there's such a there's such a um like a a thought that 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 faith must be a comfort in moments like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: How, yeah. Yeah. How does that work out in reality? That's so funny because, like, oh, <laughs> uh, because uh, that's right. I just remember C.S. Lewis's response to that when someone was like, "Your faith must be such a comfort to you," you know, now that Joyce died, and he was like, yeah. "Not at all, not a bit," <laughs> and that's C.S. Lewis. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I um, I was very. I was very angry Mm -hmm. at God. I was, I wasn't so much angry for, I was, I mean, I was angry for myself, but I, but my son was 18 months old and I thought this is, this is, this is, this is ridiculous. Like Mm -hmm. there, there will be, there cannot be a world in which this can be okay. And so how can you love me? How can you even... What was was what was any of this for, honestly, and mm-hmm. and so I was very angry, and I think also people's attempts to be comforting were. There's a particular cruelty that Christians can have in their hyper certainty, in which their uh, desire part of it is the desire to comfort you, you know, heaven. Mm-hmm families together, et cetera, et cetera. But most of it is, there's just a punitive edge to it in which promises of heaven are meant to be a solution to the problem of pain, as if it demonstrates my unfaithfulness to be so wildly pissed off. And Mm -hmm. so I, I, you know, I really found it very difficult to be around people of faith for a long time. especially during treatment. But there was this one cushion of it in which I felt, despite being so angry, God's intense love just like bubble wrapping. Like like I, I should have hit the sub-basement at that point, but then didn't. Mm-hmm. And that like the intensity of that love, which I have genuinely never felt. And certainly I think what felt so comforting about it was I was so mad, and, like, but it didn't touch that. Like I still felt loved. And that I thought was kind of amazing because it got me away from the sort of like, I have to be good. Well, I certainly wasn't being good. I was <laughs> Just like a ball of rage. And I didn't have to manufacture it with good theology. I just felt mm-hmm. loved even as I was sort of like screaming and crying and flailing around and I think that felt more real to me than any other knowledge of God precisely because I I couldn't make it or at least I wasn't. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean coming back to C.S. Lewis I've always been struck by the fact that he obviously one of his early apologetic works was The Problem of Pain in which he gave a sort of quite sort of logical analysis and answers to the problem of suffering. But then, of course, one of his later works was A Grief Observed, initially penned under a, a pen name, but kind of speaking more from the raw reality of, of losing his wife, Joy, and and just mm-hmm. the difference that there is between the kind of the, in theory, uh, apologetics and theology and the actual reality of of living through suffering. And I guess you must have had some sort of, you'd, you'd looked at and heard about and read, you know, the, the answers, the theodicies and so on before yeah. you, you contracted cancer, Kate. But I guess, did I mean, did any of that make any difference whatsoever when you actually came to confronting the pain and the grief and the suffering itself?
0: You've asked it in such a lovely way. I haven't thought about it in that angle before, because I I guess what I was an expert in was cultural stories about pain and suffering and how unnecessary it is and America has solved it and do you not have an essential oils routine and um but I uh I think what I didn't expect was um maybe just like this the roller coaster of the psalmist's language that you can be so like you can that that lament can feel so righteous Mm -hmm. And then and then like the psalm turns a corner and then God's proximity is so real. And and that that constant feeling that you feel abandoned and yet you don't and yet you don't is Mm -hmm. is one I don't think I could have described, let alone used as an argument. But now, honestly, it's one of the very few things that I believe to be a genuine promise is that God will never leave us. And that is what I have in my mind when I think of is like, even even there in a place where God should not be, that is precisely where God draws near.
2: Yeah, mm. I am um, so, uh, getting all biblical geek on you now. <laughs> I am... Um, I, Psalm 23, you know, there's that, that, just the really famous one, like the Lord's my shepherd, I lack nothing, and all of this, and, all, and then right in the middle, there's this little line about, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. Mm-hmm. And then the line in English goes, um, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Mm-hmm. But that are with is an English device to make the Hebrew translatable. So in the Hebrew, it's just, I'll fear no evil because you, me, like, because oh, <laughs> you were one, because <laughs> you, me, were one in this. Right in this, were one, and um, and I think that is That's lovely. Yeah. So like, there, the, you know, there's no outcome. Hmm. That that psalm doesn't offer an outcome. Mm. You know, the psalms don't offer an outcome the promise there is the whole you me yeah (laughs) (laughs) you exist i exist you me like we're interchangeable oh good (laughs) yeah that's just the biblical geek in me i love it but um yeah i love that too but um you you mentioned lament there and for anyone who isn't a christian or isn't we sort of you know um isn't necessarily aware of the depth of that weird and what it means, how would you describe, cool, this is a big question I realize as I'm asking it, but talk us through that weird lament. What do you mean by that? What would that look like?
0: Um, I guess an absolutely honest and raw and righteous, Anger at the unfairness of life as it is and it it's all the untidiness of I feel like I mean this is and, and it can be suffering that's caused by others it can be suffering that we bring about by our own hand it's the it's it's why people love Alcoholics Anonymous so much as a format is where you can stand up and say um, the inside out not to be repeated at parties truth. And I think people are often raised in traditions where they're not allowed to um, point out hypocrisy. I mean, especially spiritual hypocrisy. <laughs> like, wait, wasn't it supposed to be better than this? Aren't we all not supposed to be <laughs> quite so miserable and fearful and scared and undone? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the dark. It's like the it's it's the light and shadow, and be able to to point out all the grayscale of the shadow. And I, I I certainly wasn't raised with that kind of um spiritual rage fest. But I have found it to be wonderfully elucidating. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I think because in um Christian thought, you know, there's this idea that we're made, there's something within us that's like made to adore and oh. made to praise and those things. And um, I've written about that and I believe it 100%. But then on the flip side, if we're
0: made to adore, then we are literally made to lament. <laughs> I like that. And not to just give an argument for uh, profanity, but um, I, do, I, you know, all those studies that show like if you have a your hand plunged in ice water, that you can be the person that endures the uncomfortable thing for 30 seconds longer. <laughs> I I have always found that to be spiritually true. If we are held back from saying something so patently obvious that we will, that mm. that, that I don't, I don't think we have said the beautiful and true thing. I think mm. it can also be that this is unbearable.
1: I And I think sometimes Christians perhaps make the mistake of thinking... But if I don't appear to have it all together and be <laughs> victorious and, and so on, then this will be somehow a quote unquote bad witness to those around me. Yeah. I, I, I'll show that being a Christian doesn't make any difference. I, I sometimes wonder if it's more of a, an off-putting thing that that, <laughs> pe, that that when people sort of aren't just real yeah. about I, I'm as human as you, <laughs> you know, it turns <laughs> out. Mm. Uh, being a Christian doesn't stop you yeah. experience all the full gamut of human emotions. Yeah. And that's fine, because it's right there in scripture as well. And, and you know, so we kind of almost tried to tidy everything up and, and make out that, that somehow a relationship with God turns you into a superhuman. And that's just not true, is it?
0: <laughs> I totally, you know, Justin, that reminds me of. Um, so one of the weirdest moments I had in that experience was I was incredibly I was I was, I was devastated. And I have found it very difficult because of my natural exhausting optimism. Uh, to tell people how difficult it was and i then became just a wonderful liar to everyone i love <laughs> and i you know and i find that um, we often lie to the people we love most because we worry that our, our pain and our burden and our fears will be will genuinely be too much to bear because sometimes it is and so i lied to everyone uh, except i i began to write <laughs> and so i wrote this um op-ed that I gave to a friend and she said, oh, you should send it to my editor, which, who then put it on the cover of the New York Times. And I only say the fancy part because I didn't think about one, how far that goes, and two, Mm -hmm. the fact that all my information was so readily available because I didn't think about it. And so I got about 1800 letters, and often handwritten letters from people responding to what I said, which was, I am dying and everybody else is busy trying to tell me why, that it's Mm. because something I deserved or um, surely I'm a person of faith and therefore heaven should be enough. Like I am, I am, I'm terrified and scared and everyone seems to have a reason. Mm. And all I want to do is be loved. So maybe Mm. we could just, the conclusion was maybe we could just simmer down a little bit on explaining other people's suffering I thought was my argument but then most <laughs> like I would say the bulk of these 1800 or so letters were then trying to supply me with a reason about why it happened to me oh. so wow. I would be in okay. my little faculty mail area and this poor lady named Diane is like just <laughs> <laughs> giving me a box of um, and I with a little more distance I mean they were it was so it was so unbelievably painful and some of it was very lovely like Uh, In my, you know, in in karmic traditions and attempts to, well, I would love to take on some of your suffering so that you can have some of like what a lovely impulse we all have to like to share, to try to say, I wish I could. Let me pray for you and try to ease some of this Um, old people writing to say, I I wish I was desperate for my life in the same way you are. I've wasted so much of it, like, you know, really sort of profound and commentary on how people live their life, but the worst ones (laughs) were, came from particular theological traditions that, especially emphasizing God's great plans and power and sovereignty, in which my suffering then became a bad witness, that I can't then say that I am outraged and scared. I then have to allow my life and my death to then prove the faith in some way. And I thought, what a, like, Mm. what a, what a, tremendous burden to die so politely so (laughs) so very to ease myself away (laughs) from the shore for your great comfort (laughs) yeah gosh
1: I, i i mean so you were being presented in these responses and i suppose in everyday life as well with people trying to kind of often I imagine more as much for their own sake as yours to try and reason this out to make sense of it yeah. in some bigger scheme as you you know the title of your book everything happens for a reason that was a sort of one of the types of responses B- before kind of looking at what's wrong with those responses as it were what what would have been a more helpful response and I'm speaking from direct experience here, I'm not. I'm not a pastorally gifted person. I'm married to a wonderfully pastoral person, Lucy, who's who's a minister. But I, I, I was at an event the other day, and I said there was a, an elderly gentleman there, and I just said what you always say, "Oh, how are you doing?" And he proceeded to tell me he he has cancer, oh. and I was, I'm not. I don't readily know what to say yeah. in those situations because I don't want to, to give some blase spiritual thing. Yeah. I think what, what I ended up saying is. I'm so sorry. That's, that's really horrible. And, um, and I will pray for you. Um, I don't know if that was, is that, I don't know that it is, but, but what, 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 what would have helped Kate when it came to people just, Hmm. you know, having something to say to you?
0: I like what you said. I love it when people could look at me. I loved it when they said something like, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Like there's just something about the Mm because I felt so irrelevant. Um, So feeling like my suffering in particular counted was really special to me. Um, I loved it when people asked. I also loved it when people saw that I was tired and didn't ask that person obviously volunteered and wanted to tell you. And in those moments, Mm -hmm. I think the immediate mirroring back that is the absolute worst i'm so sorry um mm-hmm. i like it when people say a lovely thing that doesn't sound like a eulogy um you know when they're like you know you're such a a wonderful and funny person and i'm just you really don't deserve that like it's just it i i like the as opposed to, mm. I once got a letter written from somebody that was entirely in the past tense that was like, Kate, wow. you were Gosh. so funny. Oh, <laughs> you wow. Were. And there's something about the fact that he was my age and really good looking that just like, <laughs> killed me. I was like, I'm still a vibrant person. Um, <laughs> I love it when people um, uh, say, if, if, if they're the helper type. And that's usually a time to just identify what kind of person do you want to be. You can just be the 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 in-the-moment consoler. You Mm -hmm. can be the later helper, where you say, you know, I'd love to be on your team. Um, I'll be in touch over email, just in case you might need something I'll come up with. You know, and you don't have to say what it is, Mm because it's so nice Mm -hmm. when people get a -hmm. gift card, Mm -hmm. or like a dumb, non-teaching-me-something present. Or I have, most of my problems have been solved with, Junk food and a dumb compliment. Um, Maybe you want to be the encourager who just like sends a sweet text or a stupid story. Or you can just put it on the calendar for yourself that says six months from now, I will check back in because nobody really (laughs) remembers after about three months. So it's it's nice to be the person who circles Mm. back. Mm. You can Mm. never be all the things, but maybe deciding if you could be one of those things is nice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You, um. We've already mentioned it, but the title of your book is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And then your podcast, you've chopped off the for a reason (laughs) bit, which I love. But um I'm really intrigued by that. Firstly, and huge question, and also people should just buy your book, so don't don't give it all away. But um where have you landed on the everything happens for a reason thing then? And also my second half of the question (laughs) is um, what other lies have you loved oh man and what what, yeah. what has been maybe the other most painful one yeah i have to sort of tear off
0: well i have solved the problem of pain and of being a person <laughs> so with my five <laughs> step plan it, i've got great hair <laughs> wow. and a plucky attitude um <laughs> i think that's one of the most difficult things about trying to to be constructive right is that mm. we at least in especially in North America, they're obsessed with solution oriented responses. And so then, mm-hmm. trying to say, "Well, then, what do we believe? <laughs> I believe that um, everything may happen for a reason, but it very few of those reasons I will be made aware of. And so we have to live into significant spiritual and emotional and physical uncertainty in our lives. and that and that is why. I see faith a great deal less like certainty and just a lot more like love. It has been the love that I experience from God. Most of it is the love I experience from other people. Um, but that having less of a seamless theology means I do mm-hmm. think that we have to have more courage than we thought we did. I don't think faith is there to make us <laughs> feel good or even to especially not to um measurably measurably improve our lives i mean i think for the most part christianity will probably make your life worse and if people don't (laughs) think that i'm excited for them but (laughs) (laughs) i always um
2: yeah i always think that when that you know one of the i speak like i read lots of atheist books i I haven't but of what i know justin is the expert in this but of what i know this idea that of faith is some kind of like <laughs> the crutch argument the crutch <sighs> argument the coping mechanism the get out of jail free card um and i kind of wish <laughs> wouldn't that be nice yeah i wish that was good but the thing is is like you say i i don't think having a faith at all means you get to get out of jail free i think if anything you've got to steer it down longer <laughs> and wrestle with it harder yeah. and sit in it you know, I just, I've never, even as a child, I've never understood that argument.
0: <laughs> yeah, it. it's more like sweeping the ankle all the time. <laughs> just be like, ah, why, why is this so difficult? Yeah, yeah I, I think, I think we've got such a, you know, we've got such a, it's a, it's a constellation of hopes. But there's nothing, there's, I mean, I guess that's why I like the word seamless, is there's nothing, that will feel so cohesive about it that it will save us from having to believe in a hope that we can't see or get up again and try when mm. most of the world will not bend toward. I mean, history, we, we don't believe in in a natural telos of history that it will solve itself. We We, we believe that God will have to rescue us. I mean, all of this requires... Mm a lot more courage and i i've just had to start believing that my life in my however many years will not be a full picture of being able to tell the story that you know that there will be a time when there was no death and no weeping and no instagram you know mm. and instead mm. i'll just have to believe that it is ultimately a good story but it is not just a story about me
1: mm. I, I i guess when it comes to you know, having read a few atheist books and, and spoken to a few atheists, I've, I've I've sometimes met two two possible reactions to to death and suffering. Yeah. Um, when it comes to what that means about God, if you like, and and for some it just confirms that we there, there isn't a God because you know, if there were, I wouldn't be going through this. And and yeah. um, and and perhaps they push God further away. Um, for others, a very different reaction. They it somehow. Pushes them towards God. Mm-hmm. They they embrace God and faith because of the suffering. It seems to it seems to have almost the opposite effect on them. And I guess that's a lot to do just with the individual psychology of different people and their kind of the, their makeup and so on. But what's I mean, what's your general experience there when it comes to people, whether they with or without faith, and and the way they engage with yeah. with with death and suffering, Kate? Do you do you find that faith in general? is a positive in their life? Or is it actually, does <laughs> mm-hmm. it not make much difference in the end? Or does it, does it, do you see it? sign of the God question becoming a harder thing then for people to mm. engage with? Or, or mm. does it push people towards God? Just what, what's your general sense on that?
0: I guess that's been, um, and I'm thinking too, Belle, of your question about other lies is, I, I do think that what suffering does is it, it dismantles certain very natural beliefs that I'm in charge of cause and effect. <laughs> I do this, this happens. Look at me, build this wall. Um, So one of the things that comes apart then is our accidental individualism. We will require others to be a horrible group project. Um, uh, Another lie that um, comes apart is that we will feel the cohesiveness of our own best ideas. Most of our beliefs we don't always get to experience the emotional benefits of, I think. Love for others. That's painful and usually involves errands. (laughs) Like It will not get you ahead. I mean, so many of our virtues Mm -hmm. then become our burdens. And that is because, and that is the strangest part about this, and that is, I think, what comes apart in people's lives is the more we love, the more we love. (laughs) The more we love, the more painful it becomes, because then the more we love, and then we will lose... And then we love, I mean, it's this awful, wonderful cycle that we're caught in. And in that, I think people feel like they have to grapple with the sweetness and unfairness of so much love and that grief is this burden of love. They have to then decide whether in the absence of it, they will turn toward more love or whether they will calcify in that. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to see God as part of of a deeply beautiful remaking. So I I have seen that a lot in the community that I get to work with here at Everything Happens. They wouldn't necessarily always call it God, but I think they do know that they have to move toward deeper love in the face Mm -hmm. of grief. And that something constructive has to happen after. And that is also a wonderful place to think theologically.
1: I mean, Mm. it sounds like you certainly went on that journey yourself of kind of realizing you you you're not in control in the end you you kind of have to give up this idea that mm. which which we often kind of get inculcated into in western culture don't we that yeah. that we're basically we've got it all mastered now and then suddenly we're confronted with something that we just have no control over a cancer diagnosis a a covid pandemic something yeah. and suddenly you suddenly realize oh mm. i am fragile i'm finite i i can't i'm not the master of my destiny in the end and that's that's quite a scary thing mm-hmm. I think in, in a culture where we've sort of insulated ourselves to a large extent against death and suffering in ways that previous generations probably just didn't have the option to. So so what's the, what was, I mean, that sounds like a really hard thing to go through, but what was there a benefit in a sense to, to kind of learning that, that very hard lesson, Kate, in your case?
0: It's That is exactly the question that I love to be upset about. <laughs> Because, <laughs> um, so I've been working on this big history of self help, um, as part of my research life. And so I read every single bestseller that comes out, every single solution purveyor of You Can Fix Your Own Life. And, um, it reminds me over and over again the thing I don't ever want to forget, which is that there will be no, that there is no math for suffering i don't get to get paid back for all i lost mm-hmm. nothing will ever make it worth it mm-hmm. and yet there are these little treasures there are these like glimmers of beautiful things that i would not have learned otherwise and finding a way to express that in a way that's honest without making another sort of causal loop right, yeah. which we love. We love those cause loops. And I went mm-hmm. through this so that I got this and then I went We through like that. to tie
1: everything up with a pretty bow as though <laughs> yes. that's the end of the story. Ta-da. Don't we? Yeah. So
0: I, yeah, I, I think that's why I love the conversations I get to have is feeling like I'm constantly learning from people who didn't just find answers, because there are so few answers, but they, they called wisdom. And mm. there is wisdom, I think, to be found in suffering. Mm, wisdom
2: not answers I like that what does this and I'm aware we're running out of time <laughs> but um what does hope look like for you in a, a hope that's not toxic but a hope mm-hmm. that's rooted what's the source of that for you now and
0: and how does that look yeah I guess i um, because my hope before was largely in myself, as an yeah. insanely industrious middle-class citizen of academia, <laughs> and I was, so mm-hmm. I was—I was largely my own source of hope previously. Um, <laughs> I guess I think about hope as an anchor dropped into the future, and that God is just pulling us toward God's self just bit by bit, and that sometimes you get that feeling of that lovely horizon that god has made and and the rest of the time it doesn't we can't see it and so it's just looking everywhere it's that little breadcrumb feeling you look in the you know you look in the past for lovely things where god and love showed up you look in the present for all the little things that shimmer and then Mm. every now and then you get a little glimpse of what might yet be
1: Mm. Mm. that's beautiful Uh, there is good news in, in as much as as I understand it, Kate. You you are now cancer free. You you kind of came through that. There's always, I suppose, that temptation to somehow,
0: yeah,
1: you know, say, oh well, you know, happy ending. And uh, so, how do you, how do you resist that? Yeah. What. what, what and it's generally it's, uh, the, I think the, my temptation throughout this whole interview has been to sort of try and pull out lessons and you know
0: <laughs> I know what well, I was doing and it. and I know yeah. that's
1: that's exactly the opposite in a sense of what you're you're saying you're saying let's not leap to these kinds of you know <laughs> let let's let's draw the moral from this story and see what god was up to all the time in the background but but in in that sense what what, how do you kind of think about your life and, and mm-hmm. the, the awful things and the joyful things and, and everything and where it currently is, which happens to be at a point where you happily don't have cancer?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what's 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 kind of how do you kind of put that all together, if you like, in uh, in, in some kind of bigger picture?
0: Yeah, well, and Justin, you, you've done a wonderful job of not being a solutions factory. So <laughs> never never think that you <laughs> never think that you've done anything close to that. Um, I lived for so long with chronic cancer, and now I live with a fair amount of sort of ongoing precarity where I have to get checked and I regularly kind of form new precancerous kind of stuff. So there's just, I think what, the reason why that is at the like foundation of the answer is I will never feel like I'm beyond it. And I guess in that one way, I mean, I, I wish that I was, you know, had an uh, uncomfortable confidence in my future, but I think what I never want to unlearn is in my precarity, I learn to see something about who God is, that God loves the brokenhearted. And I learned to see something about the human condition I would have missed. And now that I see it in myself, I see. I see it in everyone, and that mm. that has I, that humbling, where I am exactly as special as everyone else. I really mm. hope will shape my understanding of justice and of love and of service, because what else are we for, you know, except to know each other's burdens? Mm. I don't mean for that to sound really pious. I just like, I something broke, and I don't think yeah. I think I don't think it. I don't think it will ever be smoothed over and i think that feels that feels more honest i guess
1: i I think for me that's that's what i've really taken away from your books and your podcast is it's honesty in in a sense it's it's not papering over the realities of how awful life can often be and but also kind of as as you've demonstrated in in your wonderful sort of character that there's joy there Mm. to be found as well and and let's not sort of imagine that it's always got to be one or the other life is just this messy mixed bag isn't it of, of things um just as we close i mean you you kind of you've seen jesus sold i suppose in those mega church televangelist scenarios as some kind of miracle cure for life you know your best life now and everything else what what's what's the picture of jesus that you now carry with you i suppose um if he's not sort of the the Benny Hinn, I'll give you everything you wanted, plus a, a Bentley on top. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have been really thinking about OKS to Life Now t-shirts, though, <laughs> <'Cause> it's, <laughs> it's just because it makes me laugh. Um, you know, I have to get MRIs a lot, and then those machines are so noisy, and they can be really scary because you're just hours away from getting cancer news. but. When I'm in them, I always have the same, like, half dream, and it's that I'm in the boat with Jesus, and he's asleep, and there is a raging storm, but because he's there, I know I don't even have to wake him up. Mm -hmm. And, like, Mm -hmm. I like the, I like the, there is a storm, there is always something, but his peace gives me peace. Mm. oh thank you Kate I don't want a girl Love these guys <laughs> this was nice don't worry I'm going to come to London and we're going to be super yeah. friends so that I can be a cosmopolitan yeah. lady and we'll <laughs> make up our theme song called cosmopolitan <laughs> lady slash gentleman for Justin you can come to our library rooftop
2: <laughs> it'll be wonderful but it'll be yeah. Oh, yeah. but seriously thank yeah. you for this conversation but also for every conversation you have you're oh, so you're so generous um, mm. and because you're such a wonderful storyteller and weirdsmith and other people who are going through things who aren't, it's like they can hang on yours, mm. if you know what I mean. That's they can nice. hang their experiences on your weirds and your explanations and your insights and your mm. wisdom, not answers. Oh, um, love. Yeah. And yeah. so thank you. Thank you for giving us yeah. a little piece of that on reenchanting.
0: Ah, thanks friends. So glad to <laughs> yeah. be with you.
1: Well, just before we finish up today's episode of the show, uh, with Kate Bowler, I just want to say that we're inviting you to support Seen and Unseen and the Reenchanting podcast in particular. Uh, especially with christmas coming along it's a good time to think about supporting the kinds of conversations that you've heard on the show and every week bell and i ask you to rate and review but we've we've never actually sort of given any of those comments out um Bell so I, I just thought i'd look some yeah. of them up and they're just oh, ab- ab- some, absolutely lovely i mean this is a bit like patting ourselves on the back but you know hey <laughs> um th- th- this is this is lovely um if someone posted the podcast hosts Bell and Justin compliment each other very well asking questions and commenting in ways designed to make their guests feel at ease while drawing out the wisdom of their experiences as communicators whatever their field while watching sets the scene and comfortably passes an hour listening again is doubly worth it so much that I missed the first time wow that well that is like the perfect review i think it is isn't podcast. it
2: that's lovely oh wow because we have these conversations and they feel so intimate when we're having them i always mm. forget that people are even listening to them so that's yes, so lovely yeah,
1: yeah so so thank you um you know grand kids inc who posted that review oh um, thank you but but again you would we would love you to do the same it does help others to discover the show as we mm. as we tell you every week but if you'd like to go a bit further and you'd like to support these shows we have a season 3 coming up soon and we want to keep going throughout the rest of the year but it obviously takes time money and resource to create these conversations so if you'd like to get behind it if if reenchanting has blessed you in some way these conversations it's really easy to give and we're just asking you to do that as we approach christmas this year do you want to remind us mm. what the, the the way to do that is bell
2: yes so head to seenandunseen.com. that's seen and unseen.com forward slash give and it's easy peasy from there
1: yeah the link is also with today's show if you're watching on youtube or listening on podcasts mm. for now thanks for being with us and we look forward to seeing you next time our final yeah. episode our
0: final one of
1: season two uh, esau mccauley coming up next week but for now thanks for being with us You've been listening to the Reenchanting Podcast. Do subscribe to listen back to all our past episodes and help others to discover the show by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also find more videos, articles, and resources at SeenAndUnseen.com. See you next time.